0: Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. So good to sing with you this morning. Wasn't that special? Just hearing God's people lift up their voices, just so great. I want to invite you to turn to uh, Revelation chapter 21, and uh, I am really excited about this passage, and I just hope that God will encourage our hearts and infuse faith in each of us and hope. Um, Because there is some great and glorious stuff ahead in Revelation 21 and 22. And so as you turn in there, last week, Pastor Billy uh, helped us see all of the outward and missional implications of the second coming of Christ and the great judgment. Um, And as we transition here to these next couple of chapters, we are entering into a new stage as it were. Everything has really been moving towards this particular end where God would dwell with his people for all eternity. What the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. And this is where it all ends up. So if you're thinking of timelines, this would be the final, final thing. This is post-second coming of Christ. Um, Whatever Christians believe about the millennium, this is post that. So this is, this is the, the final state of things, the eternal state that we'll begin to read about. So Revelation 21, and we'll look at verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. As for murderers to sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this is the word of the Lord. And the grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, pray that this word, this word that stands forever, would land on our hearts this morning for what it is and how it says in verse 5, that it is trustworthy and true that we would see the trustworthiness and truthfulness of your word this morning, and that that would impart faith and hope and joyful anticipation of the future that you hold in store for all of your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is your idea of heaven? Growing up, we definitely sang songs about one day being in glory, whatever that meant. I wasn't quite sure what that meant to me or even what heaven would be like. I mean, I knew based on one children's song that you couldn't get to heaven on roller skates because you'd roll right past those pearly gates. Uh, same with rocking chairs and limousines and ping pong balls and dirty blue jeans because heaven ain't got no washing machines. I mean, so there's all these things. As far as I was concerned, if none of those things were going to be in heaven, well, it seemed like it would be kind of a boring place. You know, and I got a little bit older and, Audio adrenaline taught me that it would be a big, big house with lots and lots of food, which as a teenage boy sounded really appealing to me. And we'd even get to play football, it, the song said. So th- then other images, of course, uh, you know. every time somebody died in Looney Tunes, they'd be floating on a cloud playing a harp and have a sad look on their face because they, you know, he didn't get the roadrunner or something. And so I wasn't sure what it would be like. I definitely had a clear picture of hell and I knew I didn't want to be there and that was enough to flee to Jesus. I I knew I didn't want to be there but I wasn't sure what heaven would be like. Where do you get your idea of heaven? Do you think of it as a spiritual realm where we float around and disembodied spirits, maybe getting reunited with loved ones and singing songs for all eternity? Does it sound like just a, a never-ending church service? Um, and besides all of that, where exactly is heaven? Are we transported to some other dimension, like death is, is maybe a portal to this other spiritual dimension called heaven. How do you think of heaven? Is it somewhere in the sky? Is it in the far reaches of outer space? We were discussing recently with our boys about heaven and one of them was explaining it to the other and said heaven is basically in the attic of outer space. (laughs) Um, But attics are dark and stinky and mysterious and loaded with unknown things and I mean not really a place you want to spend a lot of time in. Most importantly whatever your idea of heaven is, is there anything about your idea of heaven that makes you long to be there? Does it, does it make it be, is it a place that you want to go? Well that's where these verses in the remaining two chapters of this book come into play. These descriptions are given to us to convey spiritual realities to make us long for heaven. And that vision of seeing these spiritual realities can really create this longing that produces this hope and joyful anticipation of the, for, that we can have and experience even in the here and now. The, the hope and joy of what's to come is a hope and joy we get to have now. So one one writer, Scott Duvall, which I'll quote from, and I encourage you to get his book if you'd like to read about uh, the 10 essential themes of the book of Revelation. Very accessible, very devotional, great book. Uh, Scott Duvall says, thinking of the new creation brings hope, allowing ourselves to be transported in our imaginations to what God has planned for us often gives strength to walk faithfully through this broken world as we long for things to be as they should be. But of course, when we lose sight of the glories of heaven, and the reality of heaven as our true home, what will happen is the things of earth will seem more glorious. The problems of earth will seem more triumphant. And our present experience will begin to feel like our true home. And that's why we need, we so need regular glimpses of heaven. Frequently and accurately to remind us who we were made for and where we're headed. And that will protect us from pointless, aimless, hopeless, the seize the moment mentality because the moment is all we have. That mindset is all around us and seeing heaven and what God has in store for us is going to protect us from that kind of thing. So main point, main hope and goal of this message is in your notes there. Seeing heaven as the new creation where God dwells with us should make us long to go there. So... My hope for this message is that you would not see heaven as a weird, boring place (laughs) or as the mere product of maybe your own wishful thinking, but that you would better understand the glory of heaven as the Bible portrays it to the point that you actually look forward to the day all the more and you actually want to go there. Now, maybe not right now, but in God's timing (laughs) that you would want to go there. So point number one, the way we see that heaven is a new creation where God dwells, and seeing that makes us long to go there. How does the Bible get us there? Well, three ways. One, it shows us that all creation will be renewed. We see this in verses 1 to 2. In verse 1, we see this contrast between a new heaven and a new earth, and a first heaven and a first earth. Now, new heaven and new earth are both physical terms. Obviously, the earth is physical, but heaven here is not referring to the spiritual place where God dwells, that is one way to understand the word heaven. But heaven here would be more akin to our word sky or cosmos or what we see when we, when we look up. Um, it's in Greek, just like in Spanish, there's one word for the two English words heaven and sky. And so in Greek, how do you translate heaven? How do you translate sky? Same word. Um, so when you see this phrase, new heaven and new earth, well, both of those are really referring to, a, to physical places. might be better to understand it as the new earth and the new sky. Which is why verse 1 also says, and the sea was no more. Because that really covers the entire created order, doesn't it? Sky, land, and sea. It's a whole new created order. A whole new physical world. A new human environment. Heaven, in this state of, of the future, in the eternal state, this is what it is. Now, heaven as understood in terms of the place where God presently dwells, where all of the saints who die in Christ go to be with God, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Right now, there is that sense of heaven. That heaven is not passing away. That heaven ain't going nowhere. What the Bible's talking about here is the new earth, sky, and sea are coming down. And so, it's, it's a whole new version the first version of those that passed away and a renewed restored created version of those will arrive this is the new heaven and the new earth the eternal state is another way to understand that when we think of, he- of being in heaven for all eternity that's really how we should think about it as being in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity not just a spiritual dimension a disembodied dimension but a a, a realm a place that has, that is a physical reality. Again, Scott Duvall says, Revelation doesn't just say heaven, but speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, meaning a whole new world, much like the one we live in now, but perfectly better. Just as Christians will one day be raised from the dead and given new resurrection bodies, so this fallen world will also be recreated in a new earth and a new, a new sky, a whole new world. Now, let's think about that for just a moment. As glorious as this created world of nature is, and man, it is glorious, isn't it? If you've been to places where there's just natural beauty all around you and you feel that sense of breathtaking wonder, you're seeing the glorious creation that God has given us. But that glorious creation, do you realize, is still affected by the fall. It's still broken. Let's think back to Genesis when... God cursed the ground so that the good work that God had given man to do before the fall would no longer be easy. Nature would not cooperate any longer. It, was, it too was broken and fallen as a result of sin. So Romans 8 describes it this way. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting, it says. For creation was subjected to futility, that's that reference to Genesis 3, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, God was in control in the fall and causing this to happen in creation, but the futility that creation was subjected to was in hope. You see that in verse 20. That the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption. See, not just people. But creation itself is under bondage and corruption and will one day be set free from the bondage to corruption and it creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, a renewed creation. See, it's not just renewed people, praise God for that, but God is going to renew creation and the new creation, everything about nature that is broken and fallen is completely done away with. The dangerous threat of the ocean, hurricanes that flood cities, earthquakes that collapse buildings, heat waves that cause dehydration, extreme cold that freezes people to death, raging rivers that drown people, poisonous snakes and spiders and scorpions and thorns on a cactus that hurt us. It's all going away. That's the significance of the phrase in verse 1, the sea was no more. We've talked about this in the study of Revelation. The sea in ancient times represented everything dangerous and unknown, often characterized as evil. The beast emerges from the sea in the book of Revelation. But in the new heavens and new earth, those things, the sea, it says, was no more. Meaning, it's a way that to convey to us that everything in creation that would threaten us will be done away with. Praise God for that. So the the destruction that God brings, we just read about it in Revelation 20, where earth and sky fled away, it says. God's destroying the earth and sky as we know it. But this destruction that he brings is to purge creation of everything broken and evil, while at the same time actually preserving everything that is good. Doesn't mean that the earth will be vaporized or annihilated. Herman Baving said that the best analogy is the story of Noah and the flood where the earth is destroyed by, by water, but what emerges after the waters recede is not something entirely unrecognizable, but in a real sense, a whole new creation. In the end, God will destroy the earth by fire and out of his ashes, will, he will create a renew, renewed world, but not one that's unrecognizable not a spiritual dimension only. Again, Baving, my favorite Dutch theologian, says, all that is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable in the whole of creation, in heaven and on earth, is gathered up in the future city of God, renewed, recreated, and boosted to its highest glory. That's a great phrase. I love that. Boosted to its highest glory. Can you imagine it? Think of the, the prettiest places you've ever seen The new heavens, new earth will be more beautiful than that, more glorious than that. It's a way to say the the more of God's beautiful creation in the here and now that you're able to behold, just think that in the new creation, in the new heavens and new earth, it will be even more glorious than all of the glorious places that you've been able to see. I think God has put inside of the heart of man a built-in attraction to the beauty of nature. That's why there's a national park system and professional photography and artists who try to capture that on a canvas. We have IMAX 3D cameras, National Geographic, BBC Earth, all of these things. Though mankind may not know it, mankind has a desire to behold the beauty of creation with awe and wonder And that desire is actually proof that he was meant to find his deepest joy and satisfaction in everything that those realities actually point to, which is the new heavens and the new earth, one that is even better than this one, like this one, but as Bavin says, boosted to its highest glory. Scott Duvall says again, if you like the beauty of this world, you're going to love the new world God has planned. Why would the new creation be less beautiful, less breathtaking, less amazing than this world? It won't. God created the world. He wouldn't save the worst for last. If you like this world, you're going to love the new creation. God invented beauty. And our most beautiful experiences now are only hints of the beauty that awaits us in the eternal garden city of the new heavens and the new earth. But the wonder and beauty of the new heavens and new earth is not the only thing that should make us long to go there. No, a a recreated, renewed creation is actually not the best part of it all. Point two, God will dwell among his people. As we come to verse three, we see this reality. We saw in verse two, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, being a symbol of the new people of God, living in the new city of God. This original Jerusalem was never meant to be an end in itself. Yes, it was ground zero for the saving activity of God. The church was birthed there. The gospel went forth from there. And so the dwelling place of God's people in the eternal state would be described as a new Jerusalem. The city is personified as a bride adorned for her husband. So the bride is coming down from heaven. You know, we think of the bride coming down the aisle to meet her husband. And we know That in this scene, the the image here throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is the one who presents the bride, which is us, the church, to the groom without spot or blemish. And he receives her. And now, verse 3, And behold, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God will be with his people. And just, just think of that. I think back to my own wedding night some 73 years ago, or whatever it was. Just <laughs> kidding. I'm going to make up for it in a second. It was a long time ago. But we... After the wedding, it, there was a moment, I'm not going to get weird, so don't get uncomfortable. <laughs> but after the, there was a moment where, where it just landed on us and we both cried because we realized we're actually together. We don't have to say goodbye. We don't have to go to bed alone. We, we are going to be together. And that was only the beginning and there just joy that, that everything that we've anticipated, that we're waiting for, it's all happening. This is the greatest day of my life. This is wonderful. I get to be with my bride, unhindered, in fellowship with one another. What, what a glorious and wonderful experience that is. And that's what the time leading up to that is just pointing to this time, this anticipation. And so really the season of engagement would be the best analogy to church life, to, to life in the present world. But in the new heavens and new earth, that's where we come together. The bride and the groom come together, never to depart, never to have to say goodbye again. And oh man, the joy that that creates. And, uh, Yeah, I mean, we got married in this church and I was standing right here. And it wasn't even, Danette will tell you, it wasn't even when she came down the aisle that I cried. It was when one of my groomsmen came down the aisle that I lost it. Because it was just like, I I think the reason is this room is filled with people bearing witness to this amazing thing that's about to take place. And my, my, my joy, my anticipation, everything, I'm about to have it. I'm about to be with her. I saw it in your t- tears when, when, at your wedding. It's a beautiful thing. I love to see that because it's an image of what, of what is to come. And yet, it was only the beginning. You say greatest day of your life. You get married, right? That is only the beginning. And that is the image that God chooses to use to describe what it's going to be like to be with him. This has been really the desire and destination of God's saving plan all along, to gather a people for himself and to himself to be with them forever. You can see the references in Leviticus, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God. You shall be my people. Ezekiel 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All of this kind of language, Old Testament language, is coming to bear in Revelation twenty-one to show us that the final that this is the final fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. Even the language of dwelling, that that word that occurs a few times in verse 3, is an allusion to the Old Testament tabernacle. There, God dwelt in the tabernacle in a most special way, like he did nowhere else on earth. And John would later write about Jesus in the incarnation and say that John dwelt or tabernacled among us in Jesus coming to earth. But in the new heavens and new earth, he will dwell and tabernacle among us in the fullest sense possible. He will be with us and we will be with him. And then as we come to verse four, did you notice what happens when God's presence is with his people and he dwells among them? Look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. This is one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole Bible. God himself wiping away every tear from the eyes of each one of his children. See, in in his compassion and understanding, he knows that life in a fallen world will be marked by tears many times over. Tears stir up, are reflective, really, of emotions of sadness and grief, as well as affection and happiness. Whether the tears that come from losing a loved one, the tears that come from being taken advantage of or abused... The tears that come from the shame of your own sin. Or the tears that come from unexplainable tragedy and loss. God's people will shed tears in this lifetime. But in the next, we have this hope that everything that led to those tears will be wiped away. And every last tear that you've ever cried will be wiped away by the hand of God himself. This is a picture of of just total healing, total restoration, a complete mending of every broken heart. And aren't you thankful this is not just something that's on Jesus' God's to-do list of, okay, I got all these people here. We got to figure out how to uh, get to each one and wipe every tear, like Santa on Christmas night trying to get to every house somehow. Like, we're going to do it, but it's going to be tight this time. God is not looking at it that way. He is wiping, God wiping away your tears is what happens when He comes to dwell among His people. The loving, fatherly action of wiping away your tears, it emerges out of the full expression of His presence among His people. So, heartbroken saint. Sin-tossed child of God. Take heart. This day is indeed coming. It is. You will see him. And he will be with you. You will never again have to doubt the reality that he will never leave you or forsake you. Because you'll always be with him. Others may have forsaken you. Father and mother may forsake you. Those you trust to protect you and provide for you may even forsake you. But you will see on that day that your heavenly father has never forsaken you. Instead, he took you in to be with him. He gave you his spirit as a guaranteed deposit that one day you will dwell with him forever in a more real sense than you can ever even imagine right now. And he will wipe every tear from your eyes even the ones that no one else knew that you cried. This is what's in store for you. Take heart and look forward to that day. It goes on to say that death shall be no more and there will be no mourning or crying or pain. This too is prophesied in Isaiah. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Again, death, shame, tears, crying, pain, they're all part of the former things. They're gone, never to return again. And Revelation 21, 3 and 4 are telling us that Isaiah 25, 8 will in fact be fulfilled. Why? Because look at verse 5. It's the one seated on the throne is the one who's making all things new. He is the first and last. His words and promises are trustworthy and true. The one who's ruling and reigning in this new heavens and new earth is the one who has all power and authority in his hands, who can be trusted, and he is the one who moves to make all things new. And seeing this come in reality, oh man, it should make us long for heaven. Are you starting to long for it as you see it? I hope you're starting to long for it. So God will, all of creation will be renewed. God is going to dwell among his people. And thirdly, each one will receive what God has promised. Look at verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We just talked about that one. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is an allusion to Isaiah 55, 1, which says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This invitation which we read about in Isaiah 15 will eventually turn into a promise that all who are thirsty will find full satisfaction in God and he will give it to them. He gives them something to drink from this spring of the water of life. Now we're going to see this again in chapter 22, this spring flowing. And in, in chapter 22, another detail is added. The spring is actually flowing from the throne and from the lamb. In other words, it's eternally satisfying because it flows from an eternal source. It's this water, remember, that Jesus promised to the Samaritan woman that if she would drink from this, she would never thirst again. It's this water that Jesus promises to broken, sin-torn, guilt-ridden people now that if we would drink from this water, we would never thirst again. And in the new creation, that promise gets fulfilled. That's the assurance it's giving us. It will be fulfilled. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my people. The one who conquers is a phrase we've already seen in Revelation. And really, a theme of the book has been enduring all the way to the end. Those who endure to the end share in the victory of Jesus. And so they're promised a victory crown. What is that victory crown? It says here it's the heritage of being one of God's sons. And as as elsewhere in scripture, we don't want to miss the nuance of the language of sonship. There is a Greek word for children and a Greek word for son, but the Greek word for children is not what's used here. In other words, what what every one of God's children receive, according to verse 7, is the heritage of being not merely a child of God, as wonderful as that is, but a son. So in the ancient world, it was the son who got the inheritance. So for the Bible to call born-again men and women sons, it's not an expression of male dominance or patriarchy or something like that. It is a way to underscore the fact that if you're saved, it doesn't matter who you are, male or female, you get the full benefit of being a son. In other words, you have that inheritance, and Paul expounds on this theme as well in Galatians chapter 3 for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God again sons not chil- not just children you are all sons of God and he underscores the inheritance as we keep reading for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ and if you are Christ's here it is then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. That word heir is the same Greek word used in Revelation 21.7 for inheritance. And notice what's the qualifier? Who who gets the inheritance? The only qualifier here is being united to Christ. That's why Galatians 3.28 can say, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. You're one in Christ. It's not maleness. It's not Jewishness. It's not ethnicity or economic status that qualifies you to be a son. It's simply belonging to Christ. And that's why we see throughout Revelation and we'll continue to see God gathering people from every tribe and language and nation. The power of the gospel shines so brightly in a diverse community because their unity is in Jesus, not in just the secondary outward natural things that they might share together. What do they share together? What they do share together goes much deeper than the natural outward things that might otherwise bring them together if Jesus was not in the mix. What, they, what brings them together is they share this heritage of being sons of the living God. Now, but if, if everyone is a son, you might wonder, does that mean that the gospel erases their differences? Not at all. Again, Bavink states it well. He says, The great diversity that exists among people in all sorts of ways is not destroyed in eternity, but is cleansed from all that is sinful and made serviceable to fellowship with God and each other. This is how it will be in eternity. God. Just picture God gathering a diverse group of people among whom distinctions are not erased, but whose distinctions no longer lead to sinful division. That's, only the gospel can achieve that. And he is achieving that. That's why I love traveling to other cultures and meeting other Christians. Because the reality of this diversity really is in your face when you see that. You know, we we can picture heaven to look a lot like the people in the room here. You know, what we're used to, what we're comfortable with. But God's doing much more than that. Now, If that's what God is doing, and that's what eternity is going to be like, what does that mean about right now? How do you regard those who are not like you? Do you see them as a threat or problem or seemingly more benign? Do you just ignore them? The point of verse 7 is this, that the heritage of being a son, let's not forget, is granted to us. It can't be claimed or demanded on the basis of our own achievements, Race and economic status don't qualify anyone to be a son or disqualify them from being a son. Your own righteous achievements don't qualify you. Going to church doesn't qualify you. Having a higher moral standard than the next guy doesn't qualify you. No, sonship is a gift extended to you by the Father, as Second Corinthians describes him, the Father of all mercies. Sonship is a mercy that's granted to everyone. Not on the basis of our accomplishments and achievements and not disqualified on the basis of our failure to accomplish and achieve things. In one sense, really this passage where it's talking about one who is thirsty, one who is the one who conquers, these things, they're, they're, they're all expressions of God's grace. Because after all, everyone is thirsty, right? Right? Everyone is engaged in a battle of some sorts. So what are you turning to to quench your thirst now? What are you depending on for your victory? Because anything other than Jesus is going to just leave you thirsty and defeated But oh, there's better news. There's better news. And it's promised right here. Jesus promises to satisfy your deepest longings. He will give to them from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's what he promises to do. The deepest longings of our hearts, we often seek to satisfy those in things we can see and touch and feel. But Jesus offers something much better. He offers to satisfy us at the deepest level by removing the thing that's causing the restlessness to begin with, which is separation from him. And so you can get all the money in the world and all the achievements in the world and all the religiosity in the world that you can and it's not gonna satisfy the longings of your heart. It's not gonna be the spring of the water of life that only Jesus can give. And so if you're looking to these other things, oh, it would be a great time to turn to Jesus who promises that to the thirsty, which you are, whether you realize it or not, he will give without measure. And he promises to do that. So that involves uh, turning from sin, recognizing your destitute state apart from Jesus, that you are bankrupt to get anything with God. And turning from self-reliance, turning from sin, confessing that to God, placing your trust in Jesus as the one who can save you from your sins. And you will be saved. The Bible promises that. And you will be counted among those that Jesus fulfills these promises to. And that is a good thing. Verse 8, though, brings this sober reminder of what will happen to all those who reject that offer. So in verses 6 through 7, we see to the thirsty, grace. To the one who conquers, grace. But to the sinner, verse 8, judgment. Now this verse has two functions for us here. It's both a warning call to everyone who's not following Jesus. It's a warning. This is a picture of the future. This is your destination. This is your plight. If you're not standing with Jesus, if he's, not, if he's not clothed you in his righteousness, you will be found naked before the judge of all the universe. He will see every sin you've ever committed. He will see everything that deserves the fullness of the wrath of God for breaking his law and turning away from him. It's reminding us that that is going to happen for everyone who doesn't turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. It's reminding us that. It's at least that. But it's it's in this section describing heaven for a reason too. So what is that? Why would we have this section about judgment when this is a section talking about heaven? What function does it have for us here? Well, that's an important question to be asking because the reason it's here is the reason the rest of it is here To be a comfort to everyone who does trust in Jesus and to make us long for heaven. Comfort? How is it a comfort? Well, just like everything bad about creation will be destroyed, verse 8 adds a reality that everything evil in humanity will be judged. It will be. Not just the evil itself, but here it is more particularly the perpetrators of all evil. They too have an inheritance, you might say. You see that that word in in verse 8, their portion, I think is analogous to the inheritance that is given to the believers in verse 7. They have an inheritance too. It will be final and full, complete judgment. And as we think about that as believers, we want to weep with Jesus over that reality. That should be more heartbreaking for me Than it is right now. And it should always be. The reality of that is. More heartbreaking than. We ever realize at any given moment. And we need scripture to reorient us. To this reality. And that's part of what verse 8 is doing for us. It's reminding us of the reality of judgment. And as we examine that. We want to weep. Like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Who had rejected him. We want to weep over that. We want to be heartbroken over that. And at the same time, it's there to remind us that sinfulness will never again threaten God's people. And that's a promise from Jesus that we can rejoice about. We can rejoice about that. It's interesting that eternal judgment comes up in this section describing heaven. Again, why is judgment part of the picture of the new heavens and new earth? James Hamilton explained it this way, for all eternity, God's justice will be on display so that the redeemed who enjoy God's mercy will continue to feel the mercy they have received. That's why verse eight belongs in this section. May we even now feel the mercy that we have received when we read about judgment in the Bible. Whether it's here in Revelation, whether you're going through the Old Testament and you're seeing God's judgment it's always a reminder of what we deserved, right? It's, it's always that reminder that apart from Jesus, this is my plight. You know, the, the people being destroyed and wiped out in the Old Testament, we can sometimes struggle with that, but we've got to remember that apart from Jesus, this is the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so here it is again in the end, reminding us that this is what sin deserves, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God, and that if it were not for Jesus, that's exactly what our destination would be. But because he's making all things new, not just creation, not just promising to dwell among us and wipe tears from our eyes. He is making us new. Remember the, the, the text, anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All these themes are just coming together here in chapter 21. And so this judgment theme reminds us that if we were still trapped in the former ways, the old, if Jesus had not renewed us, This is what we would have deserved. This judgment. It also shows us what awaits those who don't have Jesus. It's not just showing us what we deserved. But it reminds us that those who don't have Jesus, this is what's awaiting them. And that should send us out to them with a message of the hope of the gospel of Jesus which is last week's message. So I'm not going to go into length about that. Pastor Billy did a great job explaining how judgment should compel evangelism. Now, I want to conclude with a few points of application. So if all of this, and man, there's more to come in these couple chapters, but if all of this is what heaven and the eternal state will be like, question, how should those realities make us live and think and feel right now? What difference should it make for us right now? I've got a few thoughts there. Now we started out the sermon saying, main point here is seeing heaven as a new creation where God dwells with his people should make us long to go there. So that's a first difference that it could make in your life right now is do you long to go there? Do you long for heaven Do you long to see it made new and restored and enhanced and better than the original? Do you long to see the creation that God has created for us to enjoy now, broken by the fall, destroyed and purged of everything evil and recreated into something entirely new? Do you long to see that? What will that be like? Oh, may God give us sanctified imaginations informed by scripture that would stir deep longings in our hearts for the glories of the new creation. And as amazing as a renewed, restored creation will be, resurrected bodies, resurrected world, God dwelling with his people and his people enjoying his fullness and his presence is center stage of this whole thing. And we can't lose sight of that. It is God dwelling with his people, his people experiencing his presence is center stage for this whole picture. Now, is God any different now? Is it possible now to actually experience his presence in some capacity now? Or is God saving the expression of his divine presence among his people all for the end? We got to think about that. What might it look like if we did experience God's presence with us and among us in greater measures than we currently have or currently do? Do you pray for that? Do you long for that? Do you believe God wants to do that? Do you believe he wants a bit of his presence, which will be full in eternity, to break into your present experience? Do you believe he wants to do that? Well, that's what the continuationism weekender is going to be all about. So why don't you come out to that? And let's think through what the Bible shows us about the Spirit's activity among God's people in the church. Because God often wants to do much more than we're even thinking and settling for. He has much bigger ideas than we do. And really, that's what every Sunday is all about. You don't just have to wait for the weekender. Every time we gather as a church to sing and hear God speak to us through his word, we're getting a taste of this coming reality of God being present with and among his people. Right? He's here among us when we gather and sing and hear his word preached in a way that he's not here when we're just at roses. I mean, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. Sure. Sure. But is his presence particularly manifest in some places than in others? Well, we see that throughout the whole whole Bible. So where is his presence particularly manifested? It's when his people gather under his word and submit to his authority and care for one another and allow the Spirit's gifts to flow through us to encourage and build up, edify the body of Christ. That's what every Sunday is all about. And we get to experience a bit of that coming presence in the here and now. What other aspects of heaven would you like to see break into your present this world reality? God is, in one sense, saving the best for last. It's just going to get better. But that doesn't mean he has nothing for us right now. He means for the realities of that coming kingdom to break into our families now and into our church now and into our work now. And having our eyes fixed on the eternal prize should never lead to lazy inaction in the here and now, it shouldn't. You know, there's that old phrase, he was so heavenly minded, he was of no earthly good. But I think the the way the Bible portrays it is earthly mindedness leads to no earthly good. It's heavenly mindedness that leads to the greatest earthly good. That's why we're given this vision of heaven, because it should make an impact wherever we are right now. C.S. Lewis captured this well in Mere Christianity, where he writes, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. May we not be ineffective in this world. But may we see the beauty and glory of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation and God dwelling among us and each one receiving the fulfillment of all of God's promises for his people. And may seeing that, uh, that sight of heaven, make us long to go there and may it transform how we think, how we live, how we reach out now, how we, what we pursue now, what we give our energy to now because one day he will make all things new. And this is our glorious hope. Amen. So Joshua, why don't you bring the team and let's close in a song. I wanna invite you to stand as we close in prayer. I'm, I'm excited for uh, you know, the, the younger folks that are among us because I hope that you know, you don't grow up with deficient understandings of heaven but that as we examine Revelation 21 and 22 you know the kiddos among us you get it you're getting a chance to see what the Bible actually says about it and uh and I I hope you're hope you're paying attention because God means to delight your imagination with the realities of heaven and uh because seeing that seeing heaven as what it is, as is portrayed here, the new creation, new heavens, and new earth, a place where God dwells among his people, a, a place where God is personally present, wiping away tears, doing away with everything that stands in the way of us, seeing him and experiencing him fully. That image of heaven, oh man, it should create joyful anticipation and longing. It really should. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that that would happen for us. And, and this message is just the first of I guess four we're going to do in this section, just setting the stage to say, Lord, make us long for this day. Impart hope in our hearts, joyful anticipation, confidence about the future. And may all of those experiences really show up in how we interpret life in the here and now, Lord. So do this among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.